Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. As you turn back to the back of the Bible, to chapter 20, as we go through our series in Revelation, you will notice the title, The Millennium and Judgment. The word uh, millennium sort of has uh, echoes in different people's minds. I was asked, uh, hopefully by somebody, would I be willing to have them play the song by somebody called Robbie Williams called The Millennium. I've never heard of Robbie Williams, and I've never heard the song of The Millennium, so I said no. I'm sure you're quite happy that we didn't have Robbie Williams. Should you prefer to hear Robbie Williams singing on The Millennium, you may at your convenience find it. Uh, it. The other thing that when you get The Millennium, I always remember when we moved into the year 2000, there were some we were here in the year 2000, you remember? For the first and last time, I was persuaded to walk down the centre of the aisle carrying a lighted candle. Now, that is not my scene in life, but I did it willingly because we'd reached the millennium. Our good friend Bob Dunnigan was behind me, and I believe he muttered afterwards, he's a good Scottish uh, Protestant, like I'm a good English Protestant, and uh, Bob said, if hacking can do it, so can I. So I set an example and led Mr. Dunnigan astray. But that's how we entered the year 2000, uh, the millennium. Well... That's sort of the millennium of today. The millennium, of course, is based on the verses in chapter 20. That's where we are in the book of the Revelation. Where the Re- Revelation chapter 20, twice we get a reference to the thousand years. And it's amazing how many books have been written on these few verses. How many churches have uh, disagreed on these verses. I remember I did some years ago when I was here, we did a, a Wednesday night Bible study series on the book of the Revelation that took most of the year. There was a very great and godly man here who guessed when we get to chapter 20, he and I might disagree. And uh, so he was determined to keep alive. He was uh, rather elderly. He was determined to keep alive until I got to chapter 20. And after we got to chapter 20 uh, and we met afterwards, his comment was rather nice. I said, well, and he said, well, put it this way. He said, when it comes to the glory, uh, you will discover I was right and you were wrong, but it won't matter. Then, so there you are. I won't pursue what uh, he thought. But there were, of course, different views on the millennium. And I can recollect meeting when I first went to Andrew's country in Australia, and I was met virtually from the plane by a group of students from Moore Theological College of a bygone age uh, who were concerned, because I was the chairman of the Keswick Convention, and this was a Keswick in Australia. What was the Keswick line on the millennium? And I told them there wasn't such a thing as a Keswick line on the millennium. Each Keswick speaker had his own views on the millennium. Uh, We had a little discussion. I think at the end of it we probably disagreed, but once again we parted friends. Just in case you aren't aware of all these things, very quickly, the thousand years, there are those who are pre-millennialists who believe that our Lord will return and there will come the thousand years of reign, that of the pre-millennialists. There are those who are are what they call post-millennialists who believe the church will... uh, the world will be Christianized and at the end of the, the thousand years our Lord will return. Not many signs of it happening yet, but that is the the hope of the post-millennialists. Then there are those of us, I suppose I am one, it'll come out in this, who are amillennialists, who actually believe that we're living in the light in the thousand years, which is the reign of the church, Christ sovereignly working and the spirit bound, and I'll explain that in a moment. Uh, And if you want to know more about that, you can get the book Hendrickson's More Than Conquerors. Try Amazon. I'm told you can get books by a thing called Amazon if you press the right button on your computer. Uh, and if you get More Than Conquerors through, through Hendrickson, that is kind of where I am. 
uh, which is the amillennialist point of view. I point out there are quite a number of friends in my camp, but not all my Christian friends. And then, of course, there's a final group called pan-millennialists who think it's all very complicated, so it doesn't matter. It will all pan out in the end. That's the kind of thing that all say. Well, there we are. What matters most about this chapter is what they have to say to us about Satan, about judgment, about Christ, and about victory. What I think you will notice as you, we go through these last chapters of Revelation, there's a remarkable way in which Scripture comes full circle. They are a mirror image of the first three chapters of the Bible. Genesis 1 to 3, Revelation 20 to 22, it's a kind of mirror image. Heaven and earth created, new heaven and new earth created, uh, in the midst serpent, the serpent, Satan is here in verse 2, the devil, Satan, the ancient serpent, still around. Uh, Into that comes a great promise in Genesis 3.15 that one day the seed of woman would uh, bruise the serpent's head and there will be final victory. And Revelation 22 ends with that great cry, Amen, come Lord Jesus. Now I will have failed in my job this morning tried it at 9.15, I will have failed in my job if I leave you purely arguing about millennialist points of view. I want to leave you with a a word of hope, and yet you can't duck it, a pretty solemn word in Revelation 20. I've been asked to preach on it, and I must be true to Scripture. And I hope it will, will all go away more concerned about where we stand in relationship to the Lord Jesus, who indeed has come and will come and the great promise of these verses. So, stay with me. In the first six verses, I understand these verses, here's what I call a present reality. And then in verse 7 onwards, the future certainty. Present reality, future certainty. The present reality for Satan. There he is in verse 2, but in verse 3, he's been thrown into the abyss and locked and sealed. Now, in the view that I'm trying to put across to you today, that in fact is true. God is sovereign. He allows Satan to be at work, but in that sense, he's bound. Just in case you have concerns about that, let me give you some good New Testament text for you to pursue at your your, uh, liberty. Luke chapter 10, verse 17, where Jesus said, when the 70 went out to preach and lives were changed, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Interesting, that. That as the gospel was preached, there in a sense, Satan was being defeated. Mark chapter 3, verse 27, Mark 3, 27, Jesus said, called Satan the strong man, and the strong man holds people in thrall. But when a stronger than he has come, then Satan will be uh, held and bound and unable to use all his strength. And one of the most moving ones in John 12, 31, Jesus on the way to the cross says, now, now is the judgment of this world. Now the prince of this world will be cast out. So as Christ went to the cross, he saw that as the moment of victory. And in the epistle to Colossians, Paul, looking back in Colossians uh, chapter 2, he points out in, in verse uh, 18, in, in 2, 8, 15, that Jesus disarmed the powers and authorities, that Satan, and he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Extraordinary thought. That actually when Satan thought he'd done his best, 
when Satan had got the Son of God on the cross. This was the great moment for Satan. Been working for this for a long time. He'd now got the Son of God where he wanted him. And yet when Christ cried, it is finished, even before he rose triumphant from the death, he had triumphed over Satan. The cry, it is finished, was not, I'm over, it's all over. It's triumphantly Satan is defeated. So when the devil does his best or worst, Christ triumphs over the cross. And that, I think, makes sense of these verses, that Satan is now bound because of what Christ has done on the cross. Oh, he's still around. He's still there. Uh, we see in verse, uh, in verse 7, he still has a moment of... Uh, uh, he will, he will once more have a release from his prison and he will go out to deceive people. And even now, verse 3b, he's set free for a short time. So there's a sense in which that though the devil is bound, he is not yet finished. But for, for Satan, that is the present reality. Christ has already conquered. <clears throat> We're going to come back to that constantly this morning. It will bring us back constantly to the cross. <clears throat> what does that mean to you? And it will all end on a picture of the Lamb's book of life. The Lamb is our Savior, Jesus. He died for us. And because of his death, he's opened the book of life. And we keep on asking the question this morning, is your name there? Am I written in the book of life? Uh, for the present reality of Satan. Secondly, the present reality for the saints. And we live, sometimes I think, when you think about that final day of Satan, when he will be let loose, that awful moment, there will be a day when all hell will be let loose. And sometimes when I hear the news and watch it, things happening in our own country where Christians are being marginalized, where the Christian faith is being not only ignored but abused, and I look see the world and see how Christians throughout the world are being persecuted, all hell doesn't seem far from being let loose. But not yet. Uh, there will be a day. But mean, meantime, for the saints, verses 4 to 6, here's a word to Christian people. A reference in verse 4 uh, to the souls of those who have been beheaded because of their testimony. A special reference to the persecuted Christians. Now, do remember, for whom was this book written? Did John write this book so that theologians might spend years and years uh, working their way through it, working out different systems, working it all out, having plans and arguments and divisions. Did he do it for that reason? He actually wrote it for Christians who were in Thyatira, Laodicea, Smyrna, wherever, early chapters of Revelation, who were going through persecution and who were expected through this great book, even though they might not believe all the minutiae, even they, they couldn't read all the commentaries, would read enough from it to know that ultimately... Christ will triumph. Ultimately, though you may be beheaded, though you may be martyred because of your testimony of the word of God, though you may be marginalized, you'll come through victorious. Margaret bought me for my birthday a few days ago, bought me the book of George Carey, late Archbishop of Canterbury, we, we don't do God. You recollect those are the words of Tony Blair, famous words, we don't do God. The book's a very interesting book because it compares very vividly, great, 
when Archbishop retired, they suddenly get ex become very bold and courageous to Archbishop in retirement. And in retirement, George Carey is standing out firmly, on the one hand, against laws in our country which are increasingly marginalised active Christians and pointing out how real this is and the persecution that we may yet have to face. And watch, waking up this morning to the 7 o'clock news and hearing all the debate about family life and it's the Roman Catholic Church who dare to stand up and uh, make a stand for it. These are, are some of the issues where Christians increasingly and all we stand for will be pushed into the background. And George Carey trying to contrast, compare that with people throughout the world whom he's visited as Archbishop who are literally dying for their faith in North Nigeria at the moment, which we know from past experience. There are many Christians who are going through it. So this is a very relevant challenge for the saints who will be persecuted. But who are these saints? What is the reality? Do you see it there in these verses? They are uh, already, they have been raised they are raised with Christ, and because they're raised with Christ, verse 6, they'll be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. We share in Christ's resurrection life so that one day we may share in the final resurrection. The second death can have no effect on those who believe in Christ. We're already raised in him. And one day we should be raised to be with him forever. And though there are differing views on how you interpret all this, the truth of Christians being those who are raised with Christ, who will not face the second death, is desperately important. That we therefore, the people of God, if we are the people of God, can rejoice that we have been raised to new life in him. And one day we sang it in Christ alone till he returns or calls me home. And as we get older, uh, the uh, calling home seems more relevant. But I do hope all of us, whatever age we are, look to the day when he will return, whether he calls us home first or not. So the present reality for Satan, for the saints. But let me spend most of my time on the future certainty. That's verses 7 to 15. Here are two final things. The final conflict and the final judgment. The first one can be intriguing. The second one, desperately challenging. Not an easy passage to preach on. Uh, I've been given it in the series, and I'm more than happy to do it, but not an easy passage. What about the final conflict, verses 7 to 10? Gog and Magog, you read them in the book of Ezekiel. They are the people who marched against the people of God and came to the final battle. We've seen it already. A few weeks ago, you had a series, uh, a sermon on Armageddon the final battle. We've been to the final battle before. Uh, the book of Revelation is like snapshots. You keep seeing it move forward and then go back and forward and go back. And we keep getting to that moment and now we've got to the moment in verse 11 when all that's left in the universe is the great white throne. Until that moment, then there is this final conflict. All hell will be let loose. But there's no final war there's just a final battle. They gather and, if, and fire comes down from heaven and devours them. If you like Paul's comment, it comes in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 8. Here's Paul's comment on the same moment. Then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow 
with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. That moment will come when evil will be defeated finally and forever and Satan and all he stands for will be cast into the lake of fire. There is that uh, moment, a final conflict when God has the final victory. Hold on to it. Maybe for most of us here, for whom life is very comfortable, it doesn't seem all that important. We can't look on to that day because life's comfortable enough now. Maybe if we were Christians in Syria, Christians in the north of Nigeria, we might be comforted by these truths. If you had been in the days of the book of Revelation, you were under Roman Empire authority and you were in danger of losing your life, these things would matter a great deal. He does have the last word. But look with me at the final judgment. The final judgment in verses 11 to 15 when the great white throne is there and nothing else. It's, it's, it's a solemn moment. Everything else has gone. Just the throne of God and the lamb upon the throne. And at that moment, the books are open. The book of your life the book of my life. And is it possible that when he reads the book of my life that he will say, come, it's okay. Is there any hope that the book of my life will get me there? To which the answer is no. Here he is on the throne of this universe and alongside the books is that other book in verse 12. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And people were judged according to what their books showed. But you see, uh, for those who were in the book of life, they would never share this terrible final judgment. We shall all appear, says Paul, before the judgment seat of Christ. And the books will be opened. Now, how many people are there, perhaps some in this church this morning, who would like to think that somehow I've done so well in my life that when that book is open, he will have to say, you've made it. None of us. Those books will always condemn us. Now, it is true, because it needs to be said, that if I am in the Lamb's book of life, and if I have responded to the truth of Christ, then it should make a difference to the way I live. And therefore, there ought to be about the second installment of my book, post my conversion, to be a different so that people can say, yes, okay, uh, we're not perfect, but your life has been changed. There's that lovely promise in Matthew 25, our Lord's own words, when he promises that he will come again in his glory with all the holy angels with him and everyone will be gathered. And some, you see, he will say, inasmuch as you did it to the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And if you read the final judgment in Matthew 25, it almost looks as if the Bible is saying, well, Jesus is going to judge you how, how, it, how you went on in your life towards your brothers. But the point of that is, it's, if we have been transformed by Jesus, then the way we live demonstrates the truth of our profession. I shall never be saved by my works, but my faith should show works that point that my faith was true and real. But what matters supremely is whether or not I'm in that Lamb's book of life. Preaching on hell is one of the most difficult things anybody ever has to do. May I just point out one or two simple things? One is that hell is preached more 
by Jesus than anybody else in Scripture. There is more on the lips of Jesus about hell than anywhere else. So if you, your mind is, well, of course, I love the idea of heaven, but you, I can't accept hell, then everything in the Bible that teaches heaven teaches hell. And Jesus points the glory of heaven, he does, speaks of the reality of hell. We cannot avoid that. I can recollect in my days of being vicar here, visiting a lady down in Nethergreen who was a retired professor. And uh, she said, well, when I knocked to the door, I explained we have some special services. Well, you're wasting your time. She said, I'm an atheist. Uh, I said, well, I love talking to atheists, so I'll come in. She didn't seem very keen on the idea, but I did go in to talk to atheists, and we got going. And she said, well, you see, I believe when I die, that's it. There, there's nothing. There's nothing. And I explained what I believed. And I said, have you, have you, thought, have you thought that if what you believe is true and there's nothing after death, I shall never know that I've wasted all my life, that I've preached all these sermons in vain. I shall never know because there's nothing. But then I said, just supposing, just supposing, you're, a, you're an intellectual lady, just supposing I'm true and you're wrong. And immediately said, I'll be in trouble, won't I? I said, well, that's a fair starter. Uh, <laughs> because you see, you can't go on the idea. There is no way you can, this idea that there is nothing beyond. Beyond there is heaven or hell. It's not heaven or annihilation. It's heaven or hell. That's the clear teaching of Scripture. So you get this terrible moment. Verse 15. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, of course, we don't preach hell like that anymore. Our forebears used to preach the evangelical awakening. Was, there was pretty some, some pretty solemn sermons on hell and pictorially preached. Now, we don't do that anymore. But you see, what this actually teaches is that folk who've rejected Christ will suffer the same fate as Satan. And the awesomeness of that is that you're away from God forever that is reality now why can I preach this bit about hell with, with any conviction because you see this is the Lamb's book of life this is the record of those for whom Christ died who responded to his love and when I think that God did everything possible he sent his own son into the world to die for me he saw his son on the cross uh, cry out, my God, my God, why did you leave me? Then if I reject all that he's done, then this is very ripe. Have you thought that when Jesus cried on the cross, my God, my God, why did you leave me? He was, at that moment, in hell. That's where he was. He went into hell so that we might never have to go to hell. He suffered that awful moment of being parted from his heavenly father, the only time in eternity. And because we sang it there early on about his wrath and his righteousness, he took God's wrath on him so that we might never have to. We used to sing a chorus, something like this, in his death is my birth, in his life is my life. 
He went through death so that we shall not have to go through that second death. We may die, or we shall die physically unless Christ returns, but that awesome death will not be ours because we're in him. I want to leave you with this because I know it's solemn. Here at this service, 9.50, even more, loads of children going out. When you think about your children, your grandchildren, if you're as old as me, your great-grandchildren, if, when you think about that next generation, what is it you pray for and want? As I saw the children go out in both these services, all these children learning of Christ with every hope that early in life they'll find new life, they'll find hope, and they'll be the Lamb's book of life. Is that really what you want? Because you see, for so many people, how their children get on is the important thing. Way back in the, in the Puritan era, one Puritan wrote, far too many believers are more concerned about their children getting on than getting up. I like that. More concerned about them getting on than getting up. And for many of us, that's our great Get a good degree, get a good job, do well, earn a lot of money. Is that what we want? What matters at the end is whether we're in the Lamb's book of life. It is a lovely thought that that moment when you and or I put our trust in Jesus, that's where my name is written. And the Bible says that when Christ does come again and he meets us, he will say to some, depart from me, I never knew you. And if he doesn't know me, then I'm lost eternally. But he does know me. And the moment I put my trust in him, I've got to know him. Thank God for the wonder. And at any point and in any way, we may come to Christ. It was my prayer. I, I, I hope I preach as passionately as I ever did. Uh, the recall isn't what it used to be. Uh, what, talk about preaching twice. You suddenly, in the second sermon, begin to think, have I said this already now, or did I say it at 9.15? So if I said things twice in this sermon... No doubt my wife will tell me very graciously afterwards. Uh, the, the recall isn't quite what it used to be. But the passion remains the same. And I suppose, as I get nearer that day inevitably, the deep concern to say to you all, are you in that Lamb's book of life? Does he know you? So that when we face that day, we should be ready for it. Of course other things matter. Of course it is my prayer that you and your children, your grandchildren might have a good life. And as we, that's why I get involved with some of these things happening in our nation, why I'm concerned about the rewriting of marriage. I hope you get involved and complain bitterly. Sometimes Christians are too quiet and we, we're, we're sort of frightened to make a stand. Unless we make a stand now, the thing is in a, a, a desperately spiral downwards. And of course, we should care about our children and our grandchildren. But most of all, that they might know what it is to be in the Lamb's book of life. There is the only ultimate security. And thank God for it. The final conflict, there is a final judgment. But happily, there's a final hope. It is a kind of habit of mine to sort of get you prepared for your final hymn. It, it, I want you to just look at the last verse of the final hymn because I think uh, it sums up what I've been trying to say. 
I don't choose the hymns. Uh, Peter Turnbull does it and does it very well. And this final hymn is beautiful. It's an old hymn. And he did it the last verse of the final hymn. My hope is built on nothing less. When the last trumpet's voice so shall sound, oh, may I then in him be found clothed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before his throne. I recollect there was a time when in our evangelistic enthusiasm, we encouraged people to, to change the second line. And the second line, we wanted people to say, oh, then I shall in him be found. It sounded much better, much more sort of assured. And I quite liked the idea. But I think I still prefer the old line, or oh, may I then in him be found, because it reminds me ultimately of my frailty. It reminds me that it all is of God's grace. And while I do believe I then shall in him be found, the one sure fact of my future life and the world in which I live, it's only by his grace. So I will sing, or oh, may I then in him be found. But perhaps sotto voce you will sing. Oh, then I shall in him be found. If it's true, and it would be wonderful if we went out from this service aware of the reality of where we're going and all of us could sing with conviction that we are on Christ the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Let me pray and then we'll stand. Father, we thank you for the hope we have in the Lord Jesus. Thank you that he became sin for us so that we might not face that ultimate wrath of God. We thank you that we can stand not faultless in our own ability, but faultless because we're in Christ, the sinless Son of God. Help us each one to have that true conviction. Help us truly to be based on that solid rock so that even the books of our life might reflect the Lamb's book of life, that though we could never earn it, that we might live to your praise and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.